0: You are not going to want to miss today's episode. Today, I'm talking with Karen Ramstead, the first Canadian woman to finish the unbelievably grueling Iditarod race over a thousand miles of sled dogging through Alaskan wilderness. She's an amazing woman. We had an incredible conversation that I originally thought was going to be all about mental toughness in dog sport because you obviously have to be incredibly mentally tough to run that race. But we got into all kinds of fascinating topics from animal behavior to obviously we did talk about mental toughness, breeding, structure in dogs and horses for that matter. And it was a really illuminating conversation and dive into a fascinating culture and um, event. So, without further ado, welcome to the 10th episode of The Kathy Keats Show. No,
1: no, 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 no. Say you'll be blown away but the change you see, you see and feel all right. dance all Put a little in All right
0: so I'm so excited to here to be with Karen Ramstead and we are going to be talking about all kinds of things. She is an incredibly interesting person and one of the things she's very well known for is being the first Canadian woman to finish the Iditarod, uh, the amazing race up in Alaska where, it was a if I and correct me, Karen, but it was a replica essentially of a run in 1925 where there was a diphtheria um, outbreak in Nome, and they had to get the medicine from Alaska or from sorry Anchorage to Nome, and that's one of the things I understand is a big. Um, sort of inspiration for the Iditarod. So thank you for being on here. I'm so excited to talk to you and all things about this amazing thing that you've done and all the things that you you currently do.
1: I'll I'll start you off with a little tiny bit of a correction. Sure. uh, Everybody makes this. The Iditarod actually was not... Um, commemorating the Serum Run. Okay. it's It has been associated fairly closely with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, the race was started in 1974 by Joe Reddington Sr., who was concerned that the sled dogs were losing their hold in the villages of Alaska. They were being replaced with snow machines. And he just thought that was a really sad thing and wanted to come up with a way to encourage the villages to keep dog teams and to keep the sport alive in Alaska. And the Iditarod is what he came up with. Um, and it does have, there has been a lot of associations with the serum run, which is an amazing event, um, and, but really not that much a, a commemorative of that.
0: Oh, good. Well, see, I, I've said I was going to sound, I tried to do research, so I wouldn't sound like an idiot. And I already started out <laughs> sounding like an idiot, so it's perfect. <laughs> not
1: at all, not at all. So many misconceptions about the race and the sport. There, There's certainly a lot of that out there.
0: No, I love it. That's great. That's what I love about these conversations is uh, they're sort of what globally, culturally kind of people think they know, and then the people who are really in the sports, they're the ones who really know. And what's fascinating about you, what you said is I also know that you um, – work with sheepdogs as well and very similarly that's what trialing is it's trying to maintain those abilities it's trying not to lose that working ability which I know you've mentioned in sort of what I've read about you that you're fascinated with the working ability of the dogs and that's very much what the trialing is trying to do as well is maintain that.
1: I completely agree, and I think that's why trialing um, appealed to me, uh, that uh, it's that same kind of connection with a dog, and and you know that there's a purpose that you're both working towards a goal as a team rather than, and, and a real world purpose, something that um, the dogs fully relate to, and that is, in their DNA wanting to be able to do. And they have special skills for that, for both tasks that that are better than what we as measly little humans um, could ever hope to achieve.
0: Isn't that the truth? Now, something you did that was really neat. Um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you used um, Siberian Huskies when you did your Iditarod runs, which are somewhat different from the alaskan huskies can you talk me through that a little bit and why that's so special
1: absolutely so it used to be in the at the turn of the century um the races in alaska were you know made up with any kind of dog that was existing which was a lot because of the gold rush there was a lot of dogs that were you know suspicious under suspicious circumstances made their way north and and were utilized during the gold rush and of course yeah Put a bunch of people together in that kind of situation and somebody's got to challenge the guy next to them and say, well, I, I've got a better dog team. And then in um, uh, in the 19-teens, a gentleman named Leonard Seppala started running Siberian Huskies up in that area. And uh, they kind of cleaned up. They had been imported um, from Russia, and they were they, the locals called them the little rat dogs because they were quite a bit smaller than the village dogs that existed up there. And they kind of started cleaning up at the races. And then the serum run comes into this because Leonard Sepulah was the one who drove the longest leg of the serum run, um, and certainly the hardest legs of the serum run with his Siberians to get that serum into Nome. So, and I had always uh, my husband had wanted to move to Grand Prairie. I had a job in Calgary managing a fine bone china shop, and he wanted to convince me to move to northern Alberta for a job. And he said, well, you've always wanted a purebred dog. If you move, I'll buy you a purebred dog. And I started researching different breeds of dogs and what it was. I had friends that showed dogs, so I wanted something I could show. So purebred was important to me. Um, And I researched different breeds of dogs and what I came up with. It it was suspiciously, it was March. Uh, And in those days, the Iditarod was televised on Wide World of Sports and things like that. So I'm not even going to pretend that that didn't have some impact on my decision to buy a Siberian Husky. Because the little book I had said you could race Siberian Huskies. And I thought that sounded kind (laughs) of cool. So, you know, that was kind of, the for me, it was the dogs first and the sport second. So of course I was going to do it with what I had, which was Siberians. No Siberian Husky team today is going to win the Iditarod. Um, They just, uh, a lot of the traits that they have uh, that were handy in, in the early years without a lot of technology, don't make them superstars on the trail today they're very tough they're very um, they're good at staying warm they have great feet they have great metabolisms but all those things can be overcome with jackets and high performance food we feed these days and things like that so they're not really advantages anymore and the cross um have certainly become the mainstay of, of the Iditarod and those are much to the surprise of people um, that can be a little bit of everything usually these days is It's um, some type of husky village dog mixed with some sort of pointer or sporting bred dog. I've seen everything looking from border collies, uh, dogs that look like border collies, to full bred German short-haired pointers out there on the trail. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And I mean, certainly they are a lot more maintenance um, than a Siberian is, but my heart was always with the Siberians. That was, that's my first love. I'm not a dog sledding lover as much as I'm a Siberian Husky lover.
0: I had to laugh when I was looking at your site and you have a quote on your site that says, or in an interview that you did, it turns out my love in life isn't winter sports and freezing to death. I just love watching dogs work from its instincts. I laughed so hard when I read that. I was like, yeah, I can and get it's that. The truth.
1: I kind of, yeah. And I, and, and I have to say one of your previous interviews, uh, uh, Scott, and Glenn, uh, Scott and Jenny Glenn um, were really instrumental in that in, steering me towards and giving me my, my first kind of views of, wow, this is kind of the same thing. Like, you know, as as much as they seem diverse, they're really not because they're just dogs working off instincts.
0: Right. So something that I think so many people on the listeners can um, relate to is the idea of this one dog starts you on this big journey. So for a lot of the sheep doggers it's their border collie and then it becomes the sheep, the farm, the truck, the trailer, you know, and I suppose right. in uh, sledding same, it's kind of the same. Yeah, thing.
1: kennel creep is what my husband always called it. <laughs> where we started with one and then, you know, we pretty and I knew going into by my first one um, that I wanted to breed and I wanted to do a little bit more. So I had come from horses where my I didn't have a dog for most of my growing up years. Um, and I I bought a two-year-old brood bitch um, with the intent of breeding her and having a lid just like you would a brood mare, right? Mm -hmm. So, and which I kind of credit with a lot of the successes because that, you know, I bought, rather than starting it, a lot of people start in a negative position where they bought a pet dog, and that pet dog may not be suitable for what they're doing, but they struggle along and Mm -hmm. do whatever. I bought a really nice brood bitch. And she had the genetics and she wasn't uh, the most exceptionally talented sled dog I've ever driven, but her lines were impeccable. Her health was impeccable. Um, So she gave me a super great foundation to start on, which I think was super important.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point because, you know, very often people start out with like their puppy or the, to your point, the dog that, you know, is in the house, it's the pet dog. And they're all pets, of course, after a fashion, but (laughs) um, they, you know, it wasn't one that was in kind of bred or designed for doing what they want to do. And what do you think about, um, you know, so now you have the dog trying to learn, you have the person trying to learn and they're trying to create something out of nothing almost. And it can almost create bad habits and, you know, things like that with what you're doing. So when you started out and you had, started out did you already know at that point that you wanted to you know really get into something when you bought that brood bitch oh
1: no I just wanted a Siberian I thought they're beautiful I kind of wanted to hook them up I thought that would be a lot of fun yeah and uh you know I I thought maybe a little dog team would be fun to have uh and and it just uh like you said kennel creep from there it uh somebody asked my husband once what what our limit on dogs was. And he said, 10. And I think we had about 30 at the time. And uh, they said, well, how, how can you be at 30 now if, if your limit's 10? And he said, we stopped limiting things at 10. We just gave up and see where it goes. And, and it maxed out at around 90, I think. We wow. Had at one time. Yeah. So wow. certainly it got serious Relative and not relatively quickly. It took a, it took a lot of time to grow and develop. And obviously a kennel of 90 dogs is a full-time job. For sure. Um, And we had to make changes in our lives to allow me to quit my job and do this full-time.
0: Right. Wow. That's incredible. So you end up with this dog and you, I read somewhere else that you said something to the effect, or somebody else said something to the effect of you, you know, get this dog, you may be going to, play around with a bit of sledding or something. And for someone to say to you at that point, I'm going to do the Iditarod would be the equivalent of someone starting like little novice midget baseball to go to the world series kind of thing. So what was sort of what, at what point did you say, you know, I'd like to see if I could do that race?
1: I so I remember the exact moment we had uh we had you know we've been puttering around and doing and showing dogs a little bit doing a little bit of obedience with them and you know just short little sprint races and things like that and then a friend of mine did a uh, 120 mile race in BC and he said oh Karen okay, you gotta try it it was so fun and I tried it and I won the race unfortunately which you know that's, <laughs> that's just, the worst yeah <laughs> that's that you couldn't feel the, the being said at that point yeah and uh and then we did a you know a 300 mile race and that that was like over twice as fun as the 120-mile race. So, you know, and then we we were trying to, in 1996, we both had full-time jobs um, that had, you know, and my husband was working oil field work, and, and that, of course, is always busier in the winter. I was working retail, which is busier in the winter. So we were trying to swing these two jobs and train a, a team to do 300, 400-mile races. And everything was suffering. There just wasn't enough hours in a day. Sure. We were training dogs, you know, in the middle of the night and getting up at ridiculous hours in the morning to to uh, feed dogs and get ready for work. And we ran out to uh, Duluth, Minnesota for the 500-mile John B's Bear Grease Marathon. And I think I scratched 120 miles in. The team was to- totally underprepared. I was exhausted. Uh, My husband was exhausted. And as we were driving home from that, he said to me, you have two choices. He said, we can do this on a small scale or we can do this on a big scale. But we can't do this at this level because it's killing us. And I said, I want to run the Iditarod. And he said, all right. Let's do that then. And we got home from that trip. He got fired from his job when he walked through the door, and <laughs> oh, we kind of, uh, serendipity. We, we kind of looked at yeah, looked at each other, and went, "Well, it, that's the motivation to make some life changes." And we moved. We kind of reorganized our life so I could devote myself to the dogs full time, and that it became everything in life became about I did or at at that point.
0: Wow. I got the chills when you were saying that. It's just, you know, it's sometimes, and you know, people call it different things, but sometimes life just gives you a shove in a certain direction when you're trying to make a decision, doesn't
1: it? Totally. And I feel lots of, there is, you know, my, buying my Siberian Husky, my first Siberian, um, it it was, it was kind of the planet that just gave me that little shove. And I ended up standing in a kennel of racing Siberians that a a friend of mine had, I would, was going out to visit her before we moved north to Grand Prairie and she said oh I've got all these things planned and I thought we'd go visit my boss they have puppies and I said oh what kind of puppies do they have and she said well they breed and race Siberian huskies and she knew nothing of my decision at that point that I wanted a Siberian and that was the yard I bought my first Siberian from so certainly there was that little here you go yeah
0: here it is (laughs) on a platter
1: yeah here it is on a platter that that's the direction you need to go so yeah Uh, and I appreciate looking back on that now I really appreciate that little push
0: so just to put this in context for people who aren't familiar with the Iditarod and again correct me where I'm wrong here but um, the race itself is just over a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers is that right
1: that's right. Uh, there's it, you know, varies year to year because trails are put in sure. um, as they can be due to weather conditions. Right. And it, the the race, I think, officially calls it South a thousand and forty nine miles. It's always over a thousand miles in Alaska's the forty ninth state. So right. it, they used to say it was around eleven hundred and fifty one. I think GPS seen it over the last few years when technologies become really great right. is showing us that it's just over a thousand miles.
0: Right. So anyway, just anyway,
1: anyway, you look at it. Yeah. It's a, it's, long, it's way. a
0: long way. And just to, also to put it in context, I mean, you're crossing frozen rivers, mountains, like all sorts of stuff, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There, once you leave the restart in Willow, Alaska, you're off the road system and you are total wilderness travel um, for the, for the rest of the race. So I have to ask you, going into now
0: talking about a bit about mindset and preparation is that not a terrifying thought
1: <laughs> well if you focus on it sure <laughs> i i just kind of i i don't know i just kind of i everybody always says that that's always the first comment when you know somebody'll Find out that I run, I did run, yeah. and they go, "Oh my, you must be tough." And yeah. and my response is always, or stupid." One of, <laughs> one of the two, like you know, it just like I don't know that I ever said I wasn't a kid who camped. We didn't do a lot of outdoor activities as kids. I had horses. I horseback rode, but you know, the camping and winter survival and that kind of stuff that that was not in my childhood at all. Um, so if I had thought about it and applied some logic to the situation I probably wouldn't have done it right but I just wanted to see where my dogs could go and I wanted to see what my dogs could do so I just kind of followed their lead and and I think that's been a lot of my life even to this chapter with Border Collies I just follow what the dogs are telling me and they take me to all these really great places. Uh, So it's just a matter of trusting in them sometimes that they're going to, it's not me getting to know them. It was, you know, me going on a trip with 16 of my best friends and they had the skills to get me there. I just had to hang with them.
0: (laughs) So speaking of hanging on, I read this somewhere about when, um, like most people, when you're, you know, you get caught on something, you're supposed to let go. And from what I gather, (laughs) that's the worst thing you can possibly do if you're sledding. (laughs)
1: Well, you know that's the 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 joke is. What's the first rule of dog sledding? Hang on to the sled. What's the second rule of dog sledding? Hang on to the sled. (laughs) What's the third rule of dog sledding? Hang (laughs) on to the sled. I I kind of dislike those rules because a dead monster's not much good to their dog team. True enough. And sometimes hanging on is going to get you into a heck of a lot of trouble. So there are times when, as with a horse, as with well border collies, they always come back. Pretty much, but <laughs> with the sheep, sometimes kinda,
0: unfortunately, no, if you're on the ground,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> um, but but that's kind of the you know you need to you need to be smart. Your goal has to be to be in a condition that you can always look after your team. Right. So I have let go of the sled. Um, I, I think probably my most famous story of that is in my first Iditarod in 2000, um, going along the Yukon River, which is a massive river. It's like a mile across in some spots. Um, and going across that, uh, I was exhausted. You get a sleep deprivation. Sure. is huge on this race. My first Iditarod took... Just under 15 days. And I got 17 hours total sleep in those 15 days. Wow. Um, So, and and I've never been, you know, genetically, my dad didn't need a lot of sleep. I don't need a huge amount of sleep. So it's not probably as bad as it would be for most people. But I was still exhausted. Sure. And I fell asleep on my sled. Mm. And I woke up. When my head bounced off the ice on the river, oh and my, my dogs were just trotting ahead of me, and I tried all the little, you know, calling, whistling them. Um, Siberians don't listen to that kind of stuff. They don't recall. Right. I tried <laughs> wrestling ziplocs in my pocket, thinking that they might think that was snacks and they might come back for that, and they didn't. And uh, a local uh, trapper came by in a snow machine. And he said, would you like a ride? And I, cause I was walking, the team was like quarter mile ahead of me and they had stopped by this point and they were all kind of like, hmm, what's she doing back there? Right. And, but I had this vision in my head. I knew how this was going to play out. Like I'm watching that team and I thought I'm going to walk and I'm just going to get close enough to them <laughs> and reach for that sled. And those little jerks are going to take yeah, off. Mama's here. Let's and, go. And, and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I said to the trapper, no, I said, you know, I'll walk; it'll do me good. But if you could just stop next to them and drop my snow hook in, so I know they're going to be there right. when I get there, that would be awesome. And he goes, "Yeah, no problem." So he he uh, did that for me, and I caught up with them, and they all wagged their little tails and got pets, and off we went. And when we went into the check into the village, the checker said to me, "So I hear you did some." Uh, um, running out there, and I said, "How did you hear that?" And he goes, "Oh, the trapper came in, told us what happened." So he said, "We've come up with a new name for you. We're going to call you Karen Runs instead." <laughs> well, that sucked. That was a favorite of school kids when I did school visits for a lot of years. <sighs> Uh, followed me around, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, weird. yeah, you know, holding on is certainly important, <laughs> um, but sometimes <laughs> letting go is the smartest thing you can do. Yeah, that makes
0: total, total sense. So along those lines, too, um, what would it? What did it feel like? There's actually two questions I have along these lines. Is what did it feel like to be the first woman to cross, the Canadian woman, to cross the finish line? And also, was there any... Um, you know, was there any issues with being a woman, gender-wise, being in that race?
1: Absolutely not. There's a lot of amazing women like Mary Shields and Lolly Medley and Libby Riddles that that opened that ground up for us a lot of, a lot of years ago. And it's one of the few big international sporting events where men and women compete on a totally equal footing. And I have never... Never, you're never considered a female musher. It's right. only when fans get involved right. that all of a sudden you become the first female. You know, gotcha. the first Canadian woman to finish a dead run. It, it On the trail, you're just another musher, right? And Martin Boozer, who's one of the races four-time champions, I remember him telling me, I was at a seminar he gave many, many years ago, and he said he thought it was an advantage to be a woman, because nurturing and caring, which is so much of a part of keeping that team together, is mm-hmm. the the everyday care on the trail, because you're responsible for all that on your own, um, although there are a team of vets there to support you. right? Um, they He said that just came, he thought that came more naturally to women, and therefore making us an advantage on the on the trail over men oh fascinating so we've not we've only had you know two women that have managed to pull off wins so maybe not a huge advantage but we're certainly very competitive and there's been a lot of very competitive women over the years in the sport
0: very cool so the first time you crossed that finish line were you so exhausted you hardly noticed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's high.
1: Yeah, I, and for me, my first Iditarod ended up in a scratch. Eight hundred and fifty miles, nine hundred miles into the race, I scratched uh, outside of the village of Chetulik. I couldn't get. That's where you, we crossed the Arctic Ocean. And it's a pretty formidable piece of trail because it's hard to motivate a dog team to trot out into nothingness, right? Right. There's really not much to look at. They're not. Everybody's exhausted. Um, And I had made some rookie mistakes early in the race, put too much responsibility on some young leaders, mm-hmm. um, two little training mistakes I had made and everything just came to a head and crashed back. And I tried to leave the village two or three times and uh, ultimately went back and scratched. So for me, it was 2000 miles to that finish line. Um, and uh, I worked pretty hard for that second finish. I, I changed a lot of stuff and um, really looked at, sought out some great mentors that helped me out. And gave me the skills I needed to do that, and it was. It, I think for me, and I've always said that the about five miles outside of Nome, there's this mountain called Cape Nome, and it's it's not mountain mountain, but it's pretty big hill. Right. It's, uh, and as you come over the top of it, you can see the coast. I'll spread out ahead of you and can see Gnome in the distance. Wow. And I've always said that that's kind of the moment because, you know, I could walk to Gnome from there. Yeah, I could roll (laughs) down the (laughs) hill from (laughs) there. Exactly. (laughs) You know you're going to get to Gnome, but you're still in the adventure. And I think crossing the finish line was kind of disappointing because – it was over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so much of my life had been leading up to that moment and the adventure was so amazing and so all consuming. And then all of a sudden it's just like you're done. Mm-hmm. And, and that was kind of a, uh, I always say to rookies when I talk to them about the race, you know, really grab onto that and enjoy that whole process up to that first finish. Cause it's a special time and it's, it's kind of, sad and disappointing when it's over Mm -hmm. As, as hard as you know certainly glad to have it sure glad to have it successfully accomplished but but yeah sad that it's all over
0: you know it's fascinating um I often talk to people about not hanging too much on say winning something or doing something because I say wins are often hollow like you get there and then it's almost like now what it becomes yeah. almost a bit of a letdown afterwards, you know, and yeah. I, I've known top athletes even go into depressions and various things after big events like Olympics or things like that, because there's so much lead up to that moment. And then when it's over, you know, they they don't realize how much of it was really the process of getting there, that journey of getting there and the person you become getting there.
1: Oh, I totally agree with you, Kathy. That's so truthful. Like, it's just the whole running Iditarod was all that stuff that led up to it. And, and yeah, it gives you a goal to focus on and target towards, but it was that whole journey. It was the years that it took to get qualified and get, you know, on the trail and the two years to, to get it successfully in the bag kind of thing all that whole thing that's that's the experience that's the journey not crossing that finish line
0: yeah that's so true because, you know, then you're just looking for, okay, what's next?
1: <laughs> what's next? And well, with Iditarod masters it's kind of like, oh, there's all those mistakes I made over the last two weeks. I want to go back and fix them all. So for monsters, I think it's because you have such a time frame right. that you can make so many mistakes. So there's so many, you spent two weeks going, man, I wish I'd done that better. Right. And so what we want to do is get back to March so we can do it all again and- do it better this time.
0: Well, you know what's interesting? Something you said earlier in the conversation was when things came apart, you realized that it boiled back to and I don't know if this is exactly right, but sort of how I heard it is sort of some fundamental mistakes that you made earlier on or in your training and it's amazing how far you can get on sort of a shakyish foundation but ultimately Absolutely. that yeah. is going to come up and bite you at some point so that would be part of the prep part of the skills part of the experience is, is that the same thing that you found with
1: Ab- the mushing absolutely as well. and i i think for me that like there there's a lot of it's really with lead dogs we you know dogs are still living breathing thinking Little creatures 100%. and you have to honor that that respect in them. And running lead is a huge amount of responsibility and extra pressure. And I believe dogs feel that. Mm-hmm. And uh and I had a young, really superstar leader, and I just kept leaning on him all the time. He was up there in lead. And I had another older, really uh, you know, more skilled leader that was giving him some backup sometimes, but it was all about that young little superstar, because God forbid he could move us faster down the trail. And right. then I had had to drop that veteran in that last checkpoint he had a sore Mm -hmm. wrist and time for him to go home and I dropped him and all of a sudden all that pressure's on that one dog yeah and and the fact that I hadn't given him breaks and I hadn't honored honored his head properly for the the previous 800 miles Mm -hmm. piled back on me and and I think that's ultimately there's a few other little mistakes in there too but I think that was the big one that that forced me to scratch from that race is not being fair to that guy. And he led me to many other, uh, to the finish line in other races. And he was the super superstar I always thought he would be in the end.
0: You know what's really interesting? There's a book by uh, the late, great Donald McKeg called Eminent Dogs, Dangerous Men. And it's a sheepdog book. But one of the lines in that book is, he. Um, it's Jeff Billingham, I think. He's an old shepherd. And he's talking about, like, I think on my deathbed, all my dogs will walk by and, like, talk to me about, you know, the mistakes I made. And he said, I think dog training is all regrets. (laughs) And I I get the shivers every time I think about that, because none of us get to be experienced dog handlers without making mistakes with dogs. Sure. Right. And often when we start things, our egos get in the way and everything else. And, you know, you do really try, that's part of, I think, our growth process is we always, you know, care about them, but it's learning to honor them. I think that's such a great phrase that you have is to honor them so that you really are paying attention to what they need. And it's not about yeah. the win or the the speed or the whatever it is whatever dog sport you're talking about because ultimately it's blending the team together properly that gets the byproduct of the result.
1: Yeah, I I would totally agree with you on that. And I was I was just making the comment the yesterday actually I was talking to someone and we were talking about lead dogs and I had said, you know, we get the dogs we need at different times in our life and we need different dogs at different phases of our life. So if you gave me that very first leader I ever trained back for my very last Iditarod and said, here you go, you said this was a great leader. He, he would not. <laughs> I would have thought about him way differently. Right. But he was the dog I needed at the time. Yes. And he was the dog that could tolerate my learning mm-hmm. and the dog that could rise above my mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then as I became more and more skilled, the dogs I needed um, became different. Yes. And, and, but were also there for me too. And, and, you know, I'm always grateful that those dogs appeared at different times in my life.
0: That's a brilliant way of putting it because it's so true that each – definitely are going to teach us things and often the ones that show up are the ones you need and they always seem to be the one that you have at the time the next one that shows up is almost the exact opposite because now you need the opposite (laughs) lesson of what you just did.
1: (laughs) Yeah I, I mean I think that that's absolutely true that they it's it's different and if you had given me that last leader I had you know, early in my career, I wouldn't have known what to do with that dog, for goodness sakes. Right. So it's, it's different dogs at different times.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Speaking of different dogs, you also, uh, I guess, have livestock guardian dogs, do you?
1: I do. Yeah, I have because of course, you know, the the um, well, uh, I guess I got my first livestock guardian dog when we still had sled dogs and our yard wasn't fenced. Mm-hmm. And I wanted and and I had friends that were into sheep dogs and new Glens, And so there was kind of that culture around me. And it just seemed to make sense that rather than fencing my dog yard, why wouldn't I just put a guardian dog in there? And uh, so they've they've come along for the journey. We had guardian dogs before we had sheep. Now we have sheep. My guardian dogs are kind of spoiled guardian dogs. They, you know, spend more time around the house than they do with the sheep, but, uh, but they still do their job. And I think it's, I've long commented that I've been blessed to work with those three really distinct types of dogs, you know, the, the sled dogs and the border collies and the guardian dogs, they're so different Mm -hmm. and they're, they're, everything is different about them, how they think, how they deal with situations and what they consider to be rewards and how they interact with you. All that is so different. Mm-hmm. And it's been super educational and fun to to work with those different, vastly different creatures.
0: Well, what I find fascinating is different dog sports have different cultures, right? Mm-hmm. So what we end up facing is we get a paradigm of how training works and how the dog world works when we're in a certain culture. And then when you get involved with different dog activities or different breeds, it really does expand your understanding of dogs and dog training and and even beyond thinking of dog training as like you do this and you do that, but just generally being with animals, it really changes that perspective because you get broader and broader ideas of it. And you also do horses as well. So that, again, you know, expands your viewpoint even further in terms of how animals learn and how to interact with them.
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think horses clearly, cause it's a different, you know, they're a prey animal, not mm-hmm. a predator. And I think that makes some, some big differences, but there's also a lot of stuff that carries over, mm-hmm. um, from dogs to horses. And, and I think there's some and. Gosh, confirmation and structure makes so much more sense when you sit on it. <laughs> and wonder why that horse is so freaking rough. And, you know, when you see it in a little package trotting trotting out towards your sheep or down the trail, it's one thing, but when you're sitting on that, boy, the, the shoulder, shoulder confirmation gets driven home in a big, big way at that time. So I always think it's in, you can watch people that have come from a horse world over to a dog world and I think that there's certain advantages they have for Mm -hmm. having been involved with horses.
0: Yeah I think that's really true in the agility world um, they're a little more aware of confirmation because of the jumping so they do pay a little bit more attention to dog confirmation there Um, but even just in general in terms of movement um, you know even in stock dogs you'll see dogs that are on the wrong lead trying to do flanks and you wonder why they're struggling with a flank but if you don't understand there might be a structural element going on there. You know, people just start barking at them because they think they're being whatever. And you're like, well, no, (laughs) this is probably, you're not trying to be bad. It's like they're struggling with a structural thing going on here.
1: Yeah. And and for sure, that's, I mean, I did, I showed, I showed Siberians for years and put many championships on on dogs and best in shows and group placements and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that, that um, drives home structure in a different way, but then to watch it all work, you know, is a, is a totally different concept. And um, I love that about the Border Collie world. I think it's so refreshing that the work is just the, the work is the end all and be all in that. It's, it's so many more uh, breeds of dogs would be better off if, if their breeders really believed in that, that work was the ultimate, mm-hmm. the ultimate goal. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, the whole idea of form follows function is, You know, you can look at it in one sort of setup, but if you don't see it in the big picture of it working and to your point, doing like what it instinctually is bred to do, it's really, it's harder to make those judgments, I think, personally, without really seeing it in action.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think if you, in a in a lot of cases, if you're breeding towards performance, a lot of the more minor issues are just going to fall by the wayside anyway, um, because a dog can't perform with certain faults. And, you know, I used to, I'd have breeders that were show breeders come to my kennel of 90 working Siberians and, and it's like, look at the faults you see here and the faults you don't see here. Because, of course, there's faults. Sure, Every dog of has faults. Of course. Um, but there are some faults. You, you didn't see bad fronts. Right. And because fronts on a dog that's going to do 100-plus miles a day are critical. They carry 66% of their body weight on their front ends. So right. they need solid front ends. You might see some sketchy rears kicking around in the dog yard right. but you're not going to see many very many sketchy fronts and and i think that that's that we miss these big kennels these days you know everybody owns one or two border collies and or one or two siberians or one or two guardian dogs or whatever and we're breeding the best of what we have right which in reality is is not the best that's out there. If we had a broader base to work off of, um, then we would perhaps be moving forward a little bit or, or maintaining. I think in some cases Mm -hmm. we're, we're just looking not to screw it up.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great, great observation. So um, a couple other things I wanted to ask you about is I read something and I wanted to ask you about this. You mentioned really early in the conversation about uh, like the you know, how specialized the food was getting for energy and things like that. And I read something about how um, in a race dogs start out really, you know, obviously they're raring to go and then they hit maybe a bit of a lull partway through the race and then they can start picking up energy after that or like the energy can come up again, almost like if you're a runner, you kind of hit that wall a little bit and then you come up again. Did you experience yeah. that same sort of thing when you were racing?
1: I think we, well, we used to do a couple things to help avoid, you know, and, and over the 20 years that I, the 20, yeah, 20 years, I guess that I was running I did rod, they've discovered a lot of things. And when I first started out, we used to, you know, load them. They'd start the race fat, fat, sassy and happy. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, and we figured out pretty, that that's really not the way to do it. Right. Um, you want to take them into a race, um, maybe a little bit on the hungry side, well conditioned because what they were finding was if you're familiar with horses and Monday morning sickness in horses where they would, you know, horses would get worked for six days a week and on the seventh day they would rest. And when they went back to work on Monday, they'd have lactic acid, um, build up in their muscles and some issues with sled dogs. We had what we called sudden death syndrome and it was happening about 200 to 300 miles into the race, usually after a significant rest and and they would have trouble with the lactic acid. So now we take them into the race as lean, you know, we want them to be in condition going in and there's nothing extra on them. And we're running them right up till the start of the race. Like mushrooms are out there in the days before the start, Either their handlers are putting miles on them and they're putting miles on them, just trying to keep that level. And then we used to do um, a B12 vitamin injection prior mm-hmm. to the race to keep their appetite up so they'd start off in the good habit of eating. So, you know, we're trying to kind of get past that low by bringing them into the race at a fairly consistent level now, um, and that kind of bypasses a lot of. But certainly, you look at dog teams, I, and I know as a musher as well. That wall is pretty early on. Um, you know, day two or day three of that race, you think, "Oh my God, I cannot do this for another another two days." <laughs> I'd be days in the first ten there.
0: minutes thinking that. <laughs>
1: You're exhausted, you look like crap, you you know, everything's going to heck. And you look at the, and the last five years I've worked as a judge on my did And you see these front running teams come in and you think, Oh my God, that team looks rough. And then you see them four or five days later, and they look awesome. Everything's come together. They've kind of hit their little zone. They're in the they're in their little traveling mode. And everything is different. And dogs are way different than us in the fact that they can perform at that level day after day after day after day and get stronger. At the end of a race, those dogs are not. Wiped out and exhausted, they're standing in the finish line, barking, and they are stronger at the finish of that race than they were at the start of the race. Wow! And that's an amazing thing. There's, there are not uh, humans can't do that. There's something. There's some metabolic. Meditab- I can't metabolic. say that word. Thank you. A switch that is flipped in those dogs that allows them to do that kind of work day after day after day. If you consider um, uh, an Iditarod dog eats around ten thousand calories a day. Wow. A typical Iditarod dog weighs maybe fifty to fifty-five pounds. is is pretty standard. Of course, there's variations sure. on that. Um, if so, Michael Phelps. Mm-hmm. My understanding is when he was training for the Olympics, he ate around 10,000 calories a day, but he's 200 pound man, right? So you consider that's those those Iditarod dogs are eating the equivalent of a human eating 40,000 calories a day, we would die if we did that our livers and kidneys could not process that that kind of food volume. But yet these dogs can do this. Right. They can do it day after day after day and get stronger, not broken down. And to be bluntly honest, for a while there, the U.S. military was doing some studies on sled dogs to try and figure out how they could do that because there's some applications that they sure. would really like to be able the to use The top secret, if I
0: tell you I have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. But if you have an army that can keep on that pace day after day after day after day and get stronger off of it. There's a real advantage to that, right? So these dogs are doing something that that is really unique and truly amazing.
0: Wow, that is so fascinating. You are amazing. That is such incredible <laughs> information, really. And it's interesting, too, because um, even in the human world, um, you if you're getting ready for a big event, you do something called a taper where you might reduce the... Uh, a, a certain element of training like you might reduce volume a bit or intensity a little bit um, because you're trying to create a rebound effect going into the competition but you don't just you know stop and eat cheetos and
1: you know right, <laughs> where right. to go
0: to the event kind of thing so when they're doing the um prep going into the race is that sort of the same thing like they're trying to keep it up but maybe just like, kind of, well, so manage it. Here's, a
1: bit? here's the difference between a human athlete and a canine athlete motivation and keeping that mindset right humans can do that on their own we're self-motivating right gotcha we know what the goal is you can't do that with a dog you can't say all right guys right. or this is the goal once we hit the start line of that race this is what we're all aiming for right they don't get that so right. you're what you're doing in those days prior is playing with their heads a little bit you know their bodies are there right you've you've worked their bodies they've got thousands of miles of conditioning on them they are tough as nails right now you got to get their heads on board and you know it, it comes to there's lots of um Superstitions around peaking teams, and I sure. know mushers who will sabotage their own training runs right. late in the season because it's oh my god the team's peaking right. and I don't want them to <laughs> peak in training. I want them to peak on the trail. And so you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff like that. And then I think in those final days, you're trying to keep the body level, right? And you're trying to get the mind ready to roll. Right. You want them to think they're invincible standing at that starting line.
0: Oh, that's awesome. My running joke is if I have a bad day before a big event, is I didn't want to peak. Too. Too soon. (laughs) She's do the same. (laughs) Too funny. Well, you have been absolutely fascinating. I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to come on the show here and talk. You had so much wisdom to share and it's such a fascinating element of uh, dog sport that I just can't thank you enough.
1: Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure.
0: What a fabulous interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Iditarod or Karen Ramstead, you can go to iditarod.com and also to Karen Ramstead's Facebook page, and I will have the links below in the show notes. Also, make sure to go to slash support the show to help me keep doing the good work I'm doing here, find out about what's coming up, and also there's some freebies there as well. And finally, Make sure to give me five stars and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the exciting stuff coming up. See you in the next episode.